Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. Thank you for listening to the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform, as well as share it with your colleagues. If you're looking for more content, check out or follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn and Facebook for some different types of content and check out robsreliability.com as well. If you're looking for a short daily audio tip, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Tip of the Day on your favorite podcast platform. As well, it's also available on Amazon Alexa as a flash briefing. So check that out. Finally, if there are any topics, guests you'd like to hear from, questions you want answered, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, just send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Now let's get rolling. Hey guys, I'm here with John Cummins and you may have heard, if you were quick on the draw, you may have heard a little bit of our last interview, but I have him back on this time and this one won't be taken down. So John, you know, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me again, Rob. No, I appreciate it. I had fun the first time, so I'm excited to have this one again. Yeah, you and me both. <laughs> so for people listening, John Cummins is the CEO of CalOpX. And so, John, before we dive right into it, do you want to give us just a brief overview of CalOpX, what you guys do and where they can find information about, about that? Yeah, thanks, Rob. So um, CalOpX is a relatively young company. We will be four years old in June. And we focus in, in a niche within a niche, really. It's... Um, People hear the word calibration and they automatically think of calibration, execution, um, industry processes. We don't really focus on on the execution of calibration at all. What we focus on is is the systemic business processes around it because I realized quite some time ago as a calibration technician myself that um, calibration was often managed very inefficiently. And a lot of the times it was just outsourced to maybe one big company to look after it on on a client's behalf. And often, you know, the people who are looking after it, the, the fox was guarding the hen house, so to speak. It wasn't in their best interest to run it very efficiently um, because maybe they were getting paid by the amount of activity that was going on. So our aim really is to make everybody's calibration program run as efficiently, as smoothly and as compliantly as possible. And we've already kind of proved with a lot of the clients that we have that there are great dollar value savings to be had in implementing a, a fully optimized calibration program. Um, and what, what that's really made up out of is is looking at how things are classified, what, what's truly critical, looking at how often things are done, our calibration interval analysis program, and also um, implementation of, of a truly paperless end-to-end CCMS. There's a lot of other sub-services as well, but but they're the three key ones really that, that most people get the most benefit out of and uh, luckily for us uh, people are starting to turn a corner in uh, realizing the importance of it not just from a, a regulatory requirement standpoint but also from a, a business standpoint and uh, we're we're proud to say that we're helping these people get to that next level of optimized calibration absolutely and like one of those kind of the the inside in there is 
the way, at least as far as I remember, is you're not just looking at calibration in terms of, you know, we should do this monthly because that's what the manual says. You're really looking at calibration as a risk-based decision. Yeah, absolutely. Like I think um, we work specifically in the in the life science sector, so you know, medical device, um, biopharmaceuticals, pharmaceuticals, etc. And legacy approach to calibration management was really very, very conservative. Um, you would find pretty much everything was given a standard tolerance, and that tolerance would probably be too tight and sometimes even unachievable. Um, frequencies were applied based on real arbitrary figures that maybe came from a, a manufacturer's manual. You know, specs were coming from manufacturer's specs, which, which caused all sorts of problems. And the approach was not risk-based. It was really based on really... Um, overly conservative thinking now even the regulatory bodies these days are looking at companies to to prove that they're taking a risk-based approach to calibration and because so many um, companies and so many people in the industry don't really have that approach and, and don't have that experience that's where we kind of come in we're helping them not just optimize the calibration program but really show that we can analyze the risk we can assess the risk and we can prove the absence of risk which is, which is the most important thing um just for an example i mean one recent place we looked at they had done fifty thousand calibrations over the course of 10 years in a, in a heavily regulated biopharmaceutical environment and although there had been a, a period of failures um every year maybe between two and four percent none of those failures had any impact on the product they were making or, or inherently on the patient who would receive the product so the risk is essentially nil um and a lot of people don't think of it that way so we try and re-educate them to really look at okay you may experience failures but what does those failures actually mean and oftentimes it's you know they've overclassified they have a too tight tolerance so when we can actually re-educate them and bring them to the next level we show the lack of risk and we actually improve the efficiencies as well so it's kind of a two-pronged attack which puts uh, a client in a much better Again, very highly compliant, um, but very risk-focused business process. Yeah, and like a lot of people listening, they may think that you know their calibration program. It's the, most people, at least on my first thought, would be like, "We're probably not doing enough," but not doing enough exposes us probably to some risk of you know our machines drifting out of tolerance. But doing too much is also a cost, right? Without a doubt, I mean, human interference in, in equipment is one of the most major causes of actual out-of-tolerance events that we see and subsequent deviations, you know, in pharmaceuticals and, and life science in general. When you fail a calibration, um, regardless of the fact if it was instrument drift or if somebody hit something with a hammer accidentally, <laughs> um, and I've seen this happen, you still have to do an investigation. And um, that investigation takes a lot of time. From our studies, approximately 24 man-hours for every single investigation you do. So so there's a real dollar value beside each of those man-hour figures. And the more of those investigations that you have to do, the more it's costing you, and not just the calibration department. You have other departments involved, maybe technical operations, quality, the engineering department. So it actually impacts a lot more outside of just doing calibrations. And when we show customers this as well, hey, you know, you had X amount of, of failures last year, and here's the real hours spent on it. And you should have had Y amount of failures because this amount had no impact on product. Um, 
it, it really is the shining light and it's the kind of the light bulb or eureka moments that the client has to say, hey, maybe we are being a little bit too uh, overzealous with our approach to investigations. Yeah, and that's something where I like I assume you have to take a data of like a really data-driven science type approach to it. Oh yes, 100%. I mean, as well, one of the things that frustrates me and frustrated me as a calibration technician even is the lack of a closed loop process. What I mean by that is a lot of clients will have um investigative processes when something fails, yet there is no way to close the loop. So they will investigate it uh, but the primary driver for the investigation is to prove no impact the product. Now, that's not the true primary driver of a good investigative process. It should be to find the root cause and eliminate that root cause. And what, what we find is that when there is no driver to find root cause, and the primary driver is basically to show no impact the product, they do the investigation, they prove no impact the product, but they make no changes to the actual root cause, which means when it fails again, the investigation happens a second time, and now we're into 48 hours um, of investigation for something we've already proved has no impact. So it's a cyclical process um, that is non-value-add, and again, that's another facet of the job that we try and show people. Investigate for root cause, eliminate root cause, don't investigate just to show no impact the product because then you are you're only going to forget about the real root cause once you've shown no impact the product so again this all takes time i think change management is is the most important facet of our job the most important thing we do um, because when people are not used to doing things in the way we explain it to them um, sometimes there's a little bit of resistance but again when we present our ideas in a proper fashion and and make it easy to understand um, people again see the real value in it yeah and that's that's the one thing right so i was talking about i guess a little bit about that with calvin williams and one one thing he mentioned he he had a term and he called it organizational patience and it's it's like the the concept of the term is we we can understand things quickly. We can move quickly if we're alone. But if we're trying to shift the perception or the behavior of an organization, it's going to take time. And that's something that you know we see in reliability. But I like you just mentioned, you see that as well in calibration. Uh, no doubt. And and the reason I mentioned change management especially is because, I mean, if you look on our website on, on calopx.com, you'll see our vision is right there front and center. And our vision is, is not about, you know, becoming the biggest uh, calibration optimization company in the world. It's It's to change the perception of calibration in the life science industry one client at a time. Because changing that perception and helping people to understand the importance of calibration, and I don't mean from a compliance standpoint necessarily, I mean from an actual business process standpoint that, hey, this is a real business function. It has real dollars against it. Um, yes, it has compliance and regulatory elements beside it, but we should be treating this like a true business function. And if we do, we can really gain um, efficiencies and savings on it while enhancing the compliance element as well. And I mean, if you're able to reduce costs and improve efficiencies while improving the quality in, in one optimization effort, that's the ultimate goal. And that's what we're trying to help people get to that next stage. I would suspect that, like, obviously, I'm not super familiar with the calibration industry, but I would suspect that you're kind of viewed much like maintenance and reliability in, in a sense that you're viewed as a cost and not as a value add uh, department, I guess, in an organization. Is that true? 
Yes, it is. And it's even worse than that for calibration. Um, again, this is another pet peeve of mine in that when people talk about world-class asset reliability, world-class asset management, um, I've actually worked with some other companies that are, are heavy hitters, let's say, in, in the asset management space that would be similar to us, but that look specifically at, at um, maintenance. And it still boggles the mind where they stop at the equipment level and they stop at the maintenance level and calibrations is almost never touched it's um something that's completely left alone i was actually just speaking to someone about this the other day who had you know 25 years plus in, in a very large um, pharmaceutical company and he he got it you know he very much was echoing what i had said that they had themselves hired this company to come in and talk about world-class asset management but never once looked at calibration. So even though asset management and maintenance um, are seen as like a cost to a, to a site without really looking at you know the value, even worse than that for calibration, I feel is that it's not even looked at in the first place. Um, it's considered as somebody else's problem. Um, it's a nuisance. And literally, I've spoken to so many people to say, what's the first word you think of when you hear about calibration? And nuisance is the number one word that comes out. It's something that we have to do because the regulations tell us to do it. Oh, that's somebody else's problem. I'll oh, be just outsourced that to somebody else. And these are all things, um, the, the voicings, I would say, of people who don't understand the true value of calibration. So unfortunately, I think we are the, for, the forgotten child of, of maintenance and reliability. And again, changing that perception for our clients is, is to get it spoken about in the same vein as, as maintenance and reliability and world-class asset management is talked about now. I, I'm, I am passionate about making calibration part of that conversation because it deserves a seat at the table. Yeah. And I think that, you know, like in my experience, at least since I've been in the reliability space, we've taken a, a kind of a big step forward in being recognized as not necessarily just a cost center, but also that you can add value to an organization. And so I think it's kind of like what we talked about before, where it's just like educate, 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 and then let people sort of move like they'll move slowly but let them move so then they start understanding this piece yeah yeah definitely and I, even i've been to um i've been to a lot of conferences in the last two years and in the maintenance and reliability space even and the first one i went to which is quite a big one um i heard the word calibration mentioned once in the entire week that i was there um and maybe that was really down to the types of industries that were there. You know, calibration is not considered as important in some industries. But again, we work in the life science space where it's absolutely critical. It's it's a it's a must do rather than a kind of nice to have. Um, but at the same time, I really feel that life sciences calibration. Um, if we're looking at asset management and reliability, we have to be talking about calibration. And bringing that to the forefront is kind of, you know, a huge goal for us. And I'm hoping, my, my, my dream at the moment is that, you know, we get a voice at one of these big uh, maintenance and reliability conferences for no other reason than to educate even the industry, even the reliability industry, on the importance of calibration as part of an overall asset management and maintenance strategy. Yeah, I mean, I like, to be honest, I think that it is part of it, right? Like, if we're looking at delivering like if you look at back at kind of iso 55000 asset management kind of framework it's all centered around aligning everything to corporate goals and if our corporate goals are delivering the best product or a product that's within our standard 
to the customer, then, you know, calibration is one piece of that and we have to be looking at it. Yes, without a doubt. Um, but I think from experience as well, like what, what I've seen anyway is that calibration is rarely controlled. Um, I would say rarely, but I would say it's 50-50. You would walk into a lot of um, facilities and the person who has calibration has been handed it by default. It's almost like the poison chalice. You know, you'll have people who have never worked in calibration. They might have a validation background or an automation background uh, with no direct experience in, in calibration. And they will be nominated, let's say, as the person who owns calibration. And again, this hot potato of, of hey, you own it, and no, you own it, and passing it around from pillar to post, um, that's indicative of what people think of calibration or the current perception of calibration. So even aligning with the, the corporate goals, which is an absolutely great strategy to have, someone has to care about the function enough to actually, <laughs> so it's for when the conversation about company goals comes up, someone has to care enough to actually align calibration to those company goals as well and again often it just gets left behind and like what's the typical structure so like do you have a calibration department or you just have like one guy that's your your technician how does that work yeah so it very much varies and again this is another sort of um strange parameter involving calibration when you go to different clients and different um, facilities even of the same client, sometimes the calibration function is within, say, the quality organization. And then the next facility you go to, it's under the facilities organization. And then the next one, it's within the engineering and even sometimes within the reliability organization if you are very forward-thinking, uh, which I've only seen one of so far. Um, but uh, the, the point being that regardless um, there's no straight line yes this is calibration and every time i go to the site it's going to be underneath this organization and it's going to be treated in this way um and you could have again a mixture you could have 100 percent outsource model with maybe just one person on the client end responsible for managing that project you could have a 100 internal model where they're all client employees that are working in in the department you can have a 50 50 model again that's self-explanatory um so it, it doesn't matter what the model is it doesn't matter the way it's set up or what organization it goes through regardless of what the model is it's rare very rare that you go in and see a system that's run very very well with the interests of reliability and, and equipment uptime in mind um, and as you said with the company's corporate goals in mind um, i mean that's almost non-existent so again the only way that will happen is if people consider it a truly important function if they give it the the pedestal it deserves if they understand the value that can be gained from a good calibration program and they understand that you can align it to corporate goals and you can um, get real achievements out of it you know whether that's production uptime whether that's quicker product to market um, the better you treat calibration because we're talking again about product or equipment interference when we do calibrations many times we have to take that equipment out of service anytime we take equipment out of service you know we can't produce so it, it is critical to the running of a life science facility and it should be treated that way i guess to step back to to the fundamentals if we're you know not calibrated and our gauges are telling us something that's not necessarily the case and it allows our product to fall out of the acceptable range. Like what happens? Yeah, so of course, that, that's, that's, um, that's the mode of thinking I think that most people would stick by. Well, what if we don't do this? What if it's out of tolerance, right? Now, the, the 
best way I can answer that question is that yes, there is potential impact to products from instrumentation readings. But that impact to product potential is is way lower than what people imagine. Now, the reason for that is that there's an entire process involved from start to finish, end to end, involving potentially hundreds of instruments um, along the way to make sure that the product that comes out at the other end is of sufficient quality. Now, the product control strategy involved, like making sure that product comes out at the other end um, good enough to be released to market, it cannot be based on a single measurement reading. And if it is, it's a, it's a very, very poor product control strategy. So the likelihood of one instrument failing um, and causing an impact, a direct impact to product is is very, very low. And, and this can be proved by data. This can be proved not just by the data of, of how often it passes and fails, but by investigative data that's done into even when the instrument fails, you will often see no impact to product because X. Now, that X could be there's an upstream um instrument that actually monitors it as well or there's a there's an in-process check or that it's actually checked as part of uh, release testing so there's lots of other elements to the product control strategy that severely minimize the likelihood of one single out of tolerance reading leading to a product recall um you know we've seen multiple sites where you're talking literally a quarter of a million calibrations being done um, across multiple sites we've looked at and not once has um, an instrument failure, and that data set we had resulted in a product holder recall. So, like that, that tells you it's your it tells you in and of itself um, the level of risk that's involved um, with with the question you're asking about a potentially impacting product. So, so really, what you're saying is that we're like almost a hundred percent over calibrating. Yeah, without a doubt, a hundred percent. I mean, it's. It, it, it's, I'm trying to think of the, the right analogy for it, but I mean, um, in general, like the, the risk is so low that it would be like, you know, um, wearing protective equipment to walk down the footpath. Like that's, that's the sort of um, control that people are putting on this, something that has inherently shown to be almost zero risk, yet we're taking way too many precautions on it. Yeah, I mean, for me, like coming from kind of a lubrication side, it would be like if you changed the oil every day because you were worried that it was going to get too old. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and again, the analogy I actually always use in, in a um, when I'm talking to clients in a change management scenario is that of a car. I mean, if you're talking about a car, like how often do you change the oil in your car? Like every whatever, 5,000 kilometers or miles or however it's measured. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, exactly. Right. So you change it and likelihood is even if you're going to be, you know, really steadfast and change it every 5,000 or 10,000, even if you didn't, you know, the risk is 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 not that great. You may have an, a, a visual indicator where you get a light to say, hey, you need an oil change. It's been X amount of kilometers or miles since your last oil change. So not only do you have um, a guideline to go by based on years and years of data, um, you, you basically have visual indications as well that come up and say, hey, your oil light is on if you're running low, or it even have a little software um, flash up to say, you need to change your oil because it's been 10,000 kilometers. You have all of these safeguards in it so that you don't run your car to a point where there's no oil in it, or you don't ignore it so long that you never change the oil and cause potential damage. What 
the equivalent of calibration is is you know changing the oil every 500 miles you know there's 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 no scientific basis for it it's not based on real life applications and it, you're just completely overspending on it as well with no good reason so where did those standards come from like are they just industry standards did regulators say hey you have to do it every month or or where did they come from so they came from nowhere um like what usually happens is that the regulations will not specify any standards around um the length of time between calibrations what they will say is that you must calibrate and you must show that there's calibrations being completed for example um so when what often happens is again somebody is anointed um the owner of calibration and they either take from previous experience, previous companies. They might say, hey, I'm going to write a calibration program. And what sounds good? Does six months for a critical instrument sound good? Yeah, that sounds good. Let's do that. And they implement the program day one without any basis in, in risk analysis. And it ends up being the program for years. And it's never really looked at again. Um, if you ask anybody, well, why do you calibrate that every six months? You'll hear the same answers. That's what the SOP says. That's the way it was always done here. You know, um, I got that from my last company. So, like, that's that's the kind of way. It, it's not it's not um, a, a global directive to say, hey, the FDA are coming out saying, if you have this instrument calibrated this amount of times and this amount of uh, or this this frequency. So everything is driven actually by the sites, not by some crazy directive that's out there, and and that's part of the problem. I was thinking that the answer was going to be, well, the FDA says that you have to do it this this frequently and this and that, but it's interesting that it's, it's just sort of individuals have picked intervals. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like I, I've literally had this conversation with people and, and said to them, hey, why do you do it like this? And they say, oh, that's just how it was done. I mean, and I mean, that's no justification for, for anything. Um, and especially, as I said at the start, I think the FDA are actively looking for people to show that they've taken a risk-based approach. You know, they, they might even ask the question, like, why do you do it every six months the same way I would? And, I mean, the answer is like, well, it's in our SOP. That might be perfectly compliant, but it doesn't show any true understanding of your local process, um, of the way you do things and why you do them. And I think that's kind of what they're looking for now is to, you know, anybody can read an SOP, but can you show real knowledge of your processes inside and out? And is it based on risk and reflective of that risk? Absolutely. And I, and I guess, you know, like when you go in and look at a calibration program, like where do you start? We always start with classifications, always. Um, there's a couple of reasons for that. But essentially, when we look at a, a site's classifications, we have a very, very good picture of how much they know about their process. So if we go into a site and we see somewhere between 20 and 30% critical, that's a very good sign. That means that somebody has a really good process in place where they, they know how to assign um, critical instrumentation. I still think 30% is quite high. Uh, at our company, we aim 20. So we'd like to hit 20. And in our last three projects, we've hit lower than 20, um, which, we're, which we're very happy about. But if I go into a site and I see double that, if I see 60%, um, if I've seen, which I have seen multiple times, 100% critical, I know that there's a serious lack of understanding about their process and a lack of understanding about instrumentation and risk in general. So when we start there, um, it kind of leads us down the right path. Um, 
if we start with 60% or 100% critical, we know there's a serious re-education that has to happen. Likelihood is, if there is a procedure, that it's very subjective and it's very um, poorly written. If it's 100%, the likelihood is there is no procedure um, for actually classifying instrumentation. So each one of those figures, if they're in a certain band, will lead us directly to the next um it's sort of like picking up breadcrumbs, you know, on the way to the ultimate goal. We we know where to go depending on the size of the breadcrumb we, we, we collect. And with those, like, once you have the sort of criticality listed out, like, is that something where you would, like, if, let's say they had 100% or all critical or they don't really have a good one, like, how are you starting that program back up? Are you looking at the risk yourself? Yeah, so like what what we would do is like we would look at um, validations, and we'd look at the what are considered the critical process parameters and critical quality attributes of the product that they've filed, and we'd make a, a comparison with the instrumentation that's actually monitoring those CPPs and CQAs, and look at seeing um, are they all critical, for example, which they should be if the criticality is high, and then we'd start down looking at um, other instrumentation that we would know not to be critical and we'd start questioning the client and well well, why did you call this instrument critical when we have another instrument monitoring controlling that parameter and then you start picking away at well we call the critical because here's a checkbox that we have and if we tick any one of these it's ultimately critical and that's the kind of bingo moment like we will get to that point where somebody will show us the thought process behind assigning criticalities and from there we are able to quickly determine the, the root cause of, of why this is all critical. Now, some some clients want to take on this effort themselves. They want to go back and, and try and figure it out themselves. But a lot of people don't have the time and resources, which is where we come in. So we'll actually develop the procedure for classification or in some cases just enhance the procedure to make it completely clear, um, a flowchart-based process. And we'll go off and actually do a lot of the legwork, if not 90% of the legwork ourselves, so that all the client has to do is essentially approve the work that we've presented to them. And that's a, that's a huge saving for the client as well, because you know the, the term I use is always like chiseling Mount Rushmore. If you assign somebody for, you know, it's 10% of your job to go out on the tackle classifications, five years later, that person is still working on that project. Um, whereas if you hire a company like us to come in and do it in six to nine months, the project is done and you never really have to look at it again and the cumulative savings could be in the millions. Yeah, no, you see that all the time. At least I've seen it a lot with stuff like CMMS implementations or even some reliability projects is people, they have their primary job and it's like a piece of their job and either it never happens or the quality's poor or you're right, like it would take five years to do a job that shouldn't really take that long. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, the old saying, you can uh, good, fast and cheap, you can have two of the three. Um, and I think, I think that's kind of the way, you know, um, at least what we've seen it, it's if you're trying to do something fast and cheap it's not going to be good you know um, and you can use any any variation of those parameters and you'll get the same outcome <laughs> I thought the expression was you could have good grades a fun college experience or sleep and you can have two out of the three <laughs> yeah something like that yeah I think there's a, it's a variation of the same theme 
<laughs> or the last group of questions, what are some common mistakes that people make when looking at a program and how do we avoid making those mistakes? Yeah, so I think the biggest one is really like not applying risk um, to the instrumentation that's most critical to the process and the product. Um, that's that's one of the key ones. I think also using a sort of legacy mentality and, and applying it to the modern day, it, it just doesn't work. Again, going back to the, the example of the car, you, you don't use legacy maintenance techniques on your car um, you know, from the 70s today because you have a much better... Um, reliability in your in your vehicles and most importantly for me is is not caring about calibration and considering as someone else's problem so that's again it's a pet peeve of mine because i know how important it is i am passionate about it but it's frustrating when we uh go to sites and and they just consider it that it's you know it's a, again it's a nuisance so yeah i think they're the top three um in my opinion and you know, the last question, what is your top, like, what are your top tips if someone was looking at their calibration program? Yeah, I think ownership and accountability is is the biggest thing. Um, if I was to advise anybody who's looking at the calibration, it's to understand that, yes, it is a regulatory requirement, but again, it's a true business function. So if you if you start to understand that, you'll understand that there's real money being spent on it. And wherever there's money being spent, you, as you know, there's opportunities for improvement. Um, and again, we've evidenced, evidenced that across the board now with, with our clients that we've been working with. So uh, again, we, we know it because we can show it. But if you're looking at it for the first time, just understand that it's there and, and take my word for it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that that's something that people should go out. And, and like for the, you know, like I don't know, I don't, well, I don't suspect a lot of people in our listeners are health science people, but if they are, you know, what types of questions should they go back and ask their company to sort of see where their calibration program is at? Yeah, so the, like the questions we generally ask as a starting point, like we would always start by how much you're spending a year in calibration. Uh, the, the reason that is important is because when you need decision makers to actually support an optimization project, you have to put true money behind it. Um, and you'd be surprised at the amount of people who don't actually know or are at least surprised at the answer uh, when we tell them. So, you know, we've had multiple occasions where we've asked that question, hey, how much are you spending a year in calibration? And, you know, the I don't know, that's that's the kind of response we get, the general shrug um, in, our, in our direction. So I would always start with that because you need to have a baseline as well. Um, if you're going to try and make a transformational change effort, there's no point doing all the work and then not having a, a relevant starting point to show how much you've improved. Outside of that, I think looking at how many calibrations you carry out each year, um, that's very important as well to set the baseline, how much on-demand work you're doing. Um, that can be indicative of, of over or under calibration as well if, if you're constantly being called out to, to do on-demand work. It can also be indicative of um, the calibration department being used as a fault-finding department rather than a, a calibration department, which I've seen multiple times as well. Um, and I, again, I've mentioned criticality and I think overall, just talking to people and seeing their experience in, in calibration audits, like what, what sort of experience that they have, um, what went well, what didn't go well, how confident, confident they would be 
when the next order comes up and when you start to paint a pretty good picture when you've asked all those questions and once you've got to that stage i think you have a good framework to to know at least where to start and of course if you need help we're always at the end of the telephone <laughs> no that's perfect and, and i guess it leads me into the question right so you know where can people reach out like obviously they can go to calopx.com but is there anything else that you want to plug are you going to be at any conferences should they follow you on LinkedIn? Like where can people find more about you? Yeah, we'd love people to, to follow us on, on LinkedIn. Our company page is CalopX. Um, you can follow myself personally or connect with me. I'm, I'm always open to new connections. John Cummins, I'm, I'm, you can find me there straight away. We're also um, heavily involved in, we're in Pennsylvania, our office is in Pennsylvania, but we travel worldwide. And uh, we're attending the, the Life Sciences PA um, event next week, um, the annual dinner. So that's going to be a big one. And uh, apart from that, I mean, we're, we're just living week by week to see where the next conference is at, where the next, uh, where the next adventure is going to be. So, yeah, connect with me, connect with the company on LinkedIn, check out the website, um, calopx.com. And we do have a, a Twitter and an Instagram account, but we're, we're not very active on those platforms. So I think LinkedIn is probably the best way to get us on the website. <laughs> yeah, I don't really use my Twitter or Instagram much either. So welcome to the club. <laughs> yeah yeah it's i just it's too much noise going on I, I like linkedin because people can contact you directly they can connect with you and you meet obviously a much more professionally like-minded people there so uh and it's been good to us as well i mean i i just put an article up on linkedin yesterday as well i've done four now at this stage and so it's a good it's a good outlet for the author of me um that needs to escape every now and again so you can check out my articles on my page as well perfect i'll have to take a look i haven't seen it yet but I, i'll definitely take a look excellent yeah no, so John, I, you know, I want to thank you for coming on again. I had a good time. Yeah, no, I appreciate you. Thanks, thanks for uh, thanks for reaching out again. It was always uh, always nice to talk about what I love. <laughs> That's the best part, eh? As as an entrepreneur, you know, you have to be passionate about what you do because there's a lot of hard times, so you got to get through them. Oh no, they're they're still coming, Rob. But I'll uh, I'll take them one at a time. <laughs> Perfect. So everyone who's still listening, you know, I appreciate you listening so much and spending your typically your commute, but it could also be your workout with us. Um, I hope you learned something today, like with my experience in mining and, you know, industrial applications. It's something we never really talked much about was calibration. So, you know, this is a little bit of insight of things that if you are in the life science or even if you're not, if you're looking at your process ask a few questions, see what the answers are. And then if you have any more, like you need expertise at your site, definitely reach out to John or reach out to the guys at CalOpX. They can definitely help you out. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for the extra plug. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, everyone listening, if you haven't yet, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your, on your favorite podcast platform.